Hi, everyone. This is Catherine Adams. And Elizabeth Wallace. And you're listening to Binary System Podcast number 327. And tonight, we are not um, recapping Night Vale because I guess an episode just dropped this afternoon. Which is, yeah, I think, boy, we're really behind, aren't we? Because we just recapped another episode like last week. Yeah, and we could have recorded, you know, listened to an episode and then recorded a recap of that. But what we really wanted to talk about is we both have actually watched the first episode of the new Sandman series on Netflix. I'm so happy! I really... And you know what? I would say I'm 97% pleased. There was really only one problem I had with the entire episode. Okay. Uh, Do you want to talk about that now, or do you want to talk about that later? Uh, Let's talk about that later, because it's near the end of the episode. Because I'm going to bet you probably had a similar problem with it, if you even remembered the moment that I'm thinking of. Okay. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Uh, First of all, the design work on this is just top-notch. It is spot-on. It is impeccable. I mean, everything about the dream world, everything about... The magic, how they illustrate magic going on, all of it is just beautiful. I mean, right down to the design of Sandman's helm, I think, was just yes. perfect. So yeah, yeah. loved all of that. Yeah, and he's in a glass cage because, of course, if you're in a sci-fi fantasy show, they're always going to put you in a glass cage. But he, but to be fair, he was in one in the graphic novel. And I thought that looked great, too. So many of the scenes of him sitting in there. I mean, here he is. He's in a cage, but he somehow looks like menacing and alien and really very similar to how he looked in the graphic novel. Yeah, I think the only change they made in the graphic novel was that his prison was just this almost an... I'm trying to remember it. It was almost like an egg-shaped sphere or something like that that he was trapped in, which probably wouldn't be terribly realistic to do without like a lot of CGI. So they just made this steampunky looking thing with, you know, a circular frame and everything. Oh, yes. And that brings me to the other thing, the story and all of the changes they made, I'm fine with it. I mean, the fact that Neil Gaiman has his hands on the script, I think, makes a huge difference. But it's one of those things like they change things, but it just makes it more interesting for the people who know the story backwards and forwards without it feeling like a betrayal. Yeah, it's very much like um, Douglas Adams oversaw all of these different incarnations of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But he deliberately made changes because he said nobody wants to hear the same story over and over and over again. So it's like we've added new characters, the magus, the big bad guy. He actually had a bit more of a motivation that wasn't in the story originally. It was that he was also trying to get his dead son back, which made it even more interesting because he has another son that he completely just dismisses all the time. And Magus's death scene here was different from the comic book because in the comic book, you know, he just goes down to ask Sandman for immortality and power and wealth and all of this, and Sandman keeps not giving it to him. And finally, he's just like decrepit and in a wheelchair, and he goes down and he's screaming at Morpheus and telling him, if you had given me this, I shouldn't have had to get so old. And then he has a heart attack and dies. But here, here it really worked because he's like beating on Alex in front of Morpheus's cage. And he's telling him, if you were any kind of son like Randall was, if Randall was still alive and Alex just pushes him back and says, if Randall was still alive, he would hate you just as much as I do. And then May just dies. And I thought, ooh, that's really very effective there. Yeah. And then it was just, there was this wonderful moment because Morpheus realizes, you know, Alex is under the thumb of his father through his whole life. And now he's out from under it and maybe he's going to make a decision. And they almost have this moment and Alex get distracted 
and then leaves. And it's kind of heartbreaking. But seriously, you know the most heartbreaking moment in that entire episode, obviously. It was the death of Jessamy, wasn't it? His oh raven. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That was so... Just the look in his face when she was trying to get him out. He was just so pleased to see her. And then Alex blows her away with the rifle. I'm like, oh, my God. And I, I've watched the episode twice now. I jumped both times. It was breaking my heart to see Jessamy beating her beak against the glass cage trying to get him out because I didn't see how that would work. And I was just mm. like, oh, my God, are we going to see this poor bird beat herself to death against this cage? No, we saw something worse. Oh, man. And that was not in the original graphic novel at all. And I thought the addition was wonderful because in the book, we hear much later that he's had many ravens. And the raven that came before, another raven that we're going to get to know better, was Jessamy. I remember that name. As soon as I heard it, I was like, oh, I know. This is the, this is the previous raven. Be darned. I didn't think we were going to see her end in this Oh, dear. Now, they did. They rounded out a lot of characters. I loved the appearance of Ethel Cripps, who was the Magus's mistress. We saw her before she meets the Magus, but she's obviously got designs on shacking up with a very wealthy, powerful dude. But when you see her at one point and she's been crying and you see the Magus storming away and Alex comes to find out if she's okay and she says, I'm going to have a baby, but the Magus wants her to get rid of it. In fact, he's called the doctor right now and Alex Mm -hmm. just looks so heartbroken for her and you see her just paste on this face of like, everything's fine and she tells him, it's not your worry and then she leaves, but she takes all Mm -hmm. of Sandman's treasures with her. I liked that. I also liked the way they did it in the original story, which is that mm-hmm. the Magus's second-in-command absconded with all of those treasures, and he took the Magus's mistress with him. And he actually yep. traded the helm to a demon for protection because the Magus was casting spells with all of his might to try to kill his second-in-command remotely, but his second-in-command had this charm or whatever that protected him. So when Ethel decides she's going to leave him and she takes all the stuff, he's left without any protection at all. And you see in the comic book, and he just explodes. And it's really horrifying. Oh, God. Oh, man. It is so terrifying. Now, the way that he got out of the cage was very similar in a lot of ways to the graphic novel. Mm -hmm. There was an addition that I really liked. Now, Paul is his boyfriend who they kind of... They hint at it a bit in the graphic novel. I mean, I think it's I think it's obvious, but I think it's much more explicit in here that they do say that Paul, who was a groundskeeper, did become Alex's boyfriend. And they mm-hmm. actually come out and say that, which I thought was nice. I mean, it was definitely a thing in the original graphic novel, but to make it more explicit was cool. Now, Paul is African-American in this version, in the TV show. And he had been talking to Alex about letting Morpheus go, but Alex didn't want to do that because he's like, he has to promise me that he's not going to hurt any of us. Of course, Morpheus didn't do that. And you could tell that Paul was not very happy about that. Now, in the scene where Alex talks to Morpheus the last time and Paul comes to take him away in the wheelchair. That's the same both in the graphic novel. Oh, yeah. I, believe me. I went back and read the graphic novel after I saw the episode, so I was like really <laughs> up on that is That moment is in there, and the wheel of the wheelchair, when Paul wheels him away, scuffs the protecting mark on the ground. But in the TV show, you see Paul see that it's scuffed, and kind of look back at Morpheus, and I think it's open to interpretation what he's saying, but I would guess that an African-American man is very much not cool with somebody being kept captive for any length of time. For their lifetime, basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 And I really felt 
Yeah, I thought that was definitely what was being communicated. Yeah, and I like that because it was kind of ridiculous that nobody would notice that the thing that you were absolutely not supposed to break got broken by just pushing a wheelchair through it. So it made more sense that he did it. Well, I don't know if he did it on purpose, but he definitely noticed it and decided on purpose to not fix anything. So, But then you had the whole scene with Morpheus escaping by... The one wow. guard falling asleep and dreaming of the beach and how the beach just morphs into all this stuff. And it's just beautiful oh. and gave me chills. So neat. And he, of course, wakes up and he's shooting a gun because he was shooting a gun at him in the dream. So he's shooting a gun at the cage and breaks the cage. And I just thought, brilliant. That's perfect. That's absolutely exactly what needed to happen. Yeah, because in the graphic novel, he's dreaming and Morpheus gets some sand from the beach and then he Uh gets woken up by the sound of a collapse and everybody looks up and Morpheus has collapsed to the bottom of his cage and he's unconscious. And they're like, oh my God, what do we do? Maybe he died. Let's open up the cage and find out. And just like, that would have been stupid. But this was much better, I thought. Yeah, this was wonderful. Now he gets out and this is the one problem that I had with the whole episode. I'm going to describe what happens. Did, do you have an idea what it I is? I have an idea one? what happens, yeah. Okay, what do you think it is? I think it's because he put Alex to sleep instead of putting Alex into a eternal waking nightmare. Oh, man, that's that was such... It's one of my favorite moments, because this episode is the first issue of the Sandman just, The comics. first issue, yeah, and yeah, nothing yeah, else, exactly. just that. This moment that I'm going to describe, for anybody who hasn't read this, is probably one of my favorite moments in the whole issue because it is so deliciously creepy. I mean, Sandman confronts Alex, who becomes a child in the dream for a bit, and he was always saying, oh, I I didn't know, I didn't, and because Sandman's blaming him, now that his father's dead, he might as well blame him, for keeping him like there, and he says, I will give to you the gift of eternal waking. And the second I heard him say in this episode, eternal sleep, I was like, oh, man, because hate that. Oh, in the comic book, Alex suddenly wakes up like in the real world and he's like talking to Paul. He's like, oh my God, I was having this dream that, you know, the the prisoner escaped and everything. And Paul says, oh, he did. He checked out this morning and Paul's face melts away. And then it's like, oh my God. And he wakes up and he's talking to a nurse. He's like, oh God, I had one of those awful dreams where you think you're awake, but you're actually still in the nightmare. Have you ever had one of those? And she says, I can't say I have, but you know, and her head gets ripped off, lands in his lap. She looks up at him and says, but I think you're going to have a lot more of them from now on. And the whole idea, the whole idea that he is sitting there trying to wake him up and he is just twitching, like flinching as he's still asleep. And you think, oh, my God, that is happening over and over and over again. And I think the reason why they didn't do that is because they're expanding on all of these characters and letting you see more of them you feel a lot more sympathy for Alex and what he went through growing up with the Magus as his father and then growing up with this crushing responsibility and not having the strength to just let Morpheus go because he's afraid Morpheus will kill all of them. So I guess they figured they didn't want to 
torture the character? Maybe, maybe we'll find out later on that that's what his eternal sleep is. It's the eternal sleep maybe. with nightmares. Yeah, either that or maybe they're saving that particular punishment for somebody else. I mean, we've already seen the Corinthian, who is mm-hmm. not a good person. Nope. I know he has an end in the graphic novel, but I mean, there's many characters. Who knows? Maybe, um, what's his name that we're going to find out later? Spoilers, uh, John D. Oh, yeah. 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 He actually, in the graphic novel, he doesn't have that bad of an ending, I suppose. Maybe he's saving that terrible ending for there. I don't That's know. a good point, because you don't ever really see that so much resolved, do you? Just him going back to prison. I think so. And also, it would be like thematically pretty cool to, in this episode, have him say, I give you the gift of eternal sleep. And then later on, he says, I give you the gift of eternal waking. And so we kind of set that up. Uh, I like that. I like that a lot. You know, I've been seeing everybody talking about this series on Twitter. And it's the um, the episode, The Sound of Her Wings, that's yes. that one shot where he travels with death as she goes from place to place doing her duty and taking people who have died. And there were so many people who thought that phrase, you got just what everybody gets, you got a lifetime. They thought she said that to the little baby who was like, oh, wow, that's all I got? No, they didn't. I mean, Neil Gaiman no. himself shared a screen cap of that particular page to show, no, she doesn't say that to the baby. She says that later on, way later on. That's a part of the Brief Lives. Um, I think I think it is. Brief Lives? Yeah. or Brief Lives was the one where they're traveling around trying to find destruction, right? I think so. Yeah, yeah. I think that is. Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah, that's... The funny thing is, I remember having that exact same moment that everybody else is having. I loved that line. You know, it's just, you got what everybody gets, you get a lifetime. I love that. And I went back looking for it, and I looked at that episode, and I went, oh, I thought she said it to the baby. So, no, she doesn't. <laughs> everybody thought that. Catherine Valente thought that, and I'm sure she's read this book so many times. Yeah, honestly, um, uh, Ursula Vernon, that's how I saw that the conversation, because I've been trying to be careful about spoilers, even though, I mean, this graphic novel came out decades ago, but still... Um, (laughs) Ursula Vernon just posted, hey, she's like, I'll count me among the same people. I could have sworn that was where she said it, but nope, that's not where she said it. So I watched the little preview thing where they had images from this season of Sandman, and I could look this up, but I'm not gonna. Who was the actress who played Clara in Doctor Who? Oh, crap, I don't know, because you know what? A lot of times on those next time on this episode or whatever, because they do it on Doctor Who a lot. A lot of times I skip that because I like to be unspoiled, Mm. but I already knew that she was going to be in this, so I can't remember what her name is yet. I I may have heard that before, but it was a shock to see her, and I could not for the life of me figure out which character she's playing. I don't know. I don't (sighs) know. I haven't even looked at it because I've I've known she was going to be in it because there's been a lot of like... I think it might have been, they do a thing now called character posters, where any big movie or big TV show, they'll do a very cool looking poster for every single character. And I kind of think she had one as well. Either that or I saw her in a promo image. I don't know. There's no way to know. But um, yeah, no, I remember being excited that she was going to be in it. And um, you know who's going to be playing Matthew the Raven? Oh, who is it? Wait a minute. The voice was so familiar in the preview. (laughs) Patton Oswalt. Yay! Okay. (laughs) Man. That's perfect. I just, I'm not even going to spoil anybody, but I remember reading the issue, the graphic novel, The Wake, and Lucian said something to Matthew, and I had just friggin' read the issue of another comic book series where the quote that Lucian said came up, and I was like, 
that's who Matthew is just blew my freaking mind. I have no idea. They are probably not going to do that kind of a tie-in here because that particular comic book series has not gotten a TV property in decades. But yeah, just the tie-in with that, I was so blown away. So I'm really looking forward to see what they do with Matthew because he was always a fantastic character. Oh, yeah, he's great. But I'm looking forward to so many characters. I mean, Cain and Abel. Oh, that's going to be rough when we see them. Oh, my goodness. I saw a glimpse in the little preview section. There's going to be Mazikeen in hell. And that is so interesting because I actually do like how they did Mazikeen in the Lucifer TV series. But this is going to be Mazikeen. This is going to be her with the face rotting off and, you know, madly in love with the devil. So I can't wait. Can't wait so much. But yeah, I've I've got really good hopes after seeing the first episode. I mean, there's that one scene where it's Jessamy flying through the dream realm and you see all these wonderful images and you see the three guardians at the door, the dragon, the hippogriff, and the griffin. And um, that just looked amazing. But there's this one very brief shot it's like a stone bridge in a river with yes, these I know two which one you're stone about. hands lifting it up. Oh, it looked beautiful. Oh, my So goodness. beautiful. And the fact that it was moving, too, to make it yeah. really obvious yeah. that this is a dream. So, yes. yeah. Oh, man. Really, really good. Well, that's all we're going to say about Sandman for now, obviously. I mean, it's 10 episodes in the first season, so more to come. But, um, yeah, what we're going to jump into next is something that is way in our wheelhouse. And Hannah actually sent us a link to let us know that it was out. Uh, The Trainwreck documentary, Woodstock 99. Oh, give it all to me. Put it in my veins. I just, the whole idea of a festival disaster story is irresistible. Although... This one's a lot darker than Fire Festival. Yeah, we were talking about this before the recording. The thing that was so fun about the Fire Festival was that we felt like we could engage in a lot of shade and fruit because it was a bunch of rich kids. Um, I felt bad for certainly some of the people who had gotten scammed, who got did not get paid on the island or the peninsula, because I guess it wasn't an island. <laughs> it wasn't an island, no. Um, no. But other than that, nobody got hurt. So it felt okay to be like, I mean, if somebody had died or gotten paralyzed or terribly injured or whatever, it would have felt awful. And as it was, we were like, oh, man, look at this disaster of a story. Now, Trainwrecked has some similarities, but my God, like a lot of people got hurt at the Woodstock 99, and it was just gross negligence on everybody's part. Oh, God. And there was something that I wanted to ask you. And a lot of people have said that they have a problem with the fact that they only devoted like four minutes to this particular issue at the very end of the final episode, because it's kind of important. But they had, everything had wrapped up, everyone had finally gone home, they're just shaking off the ashes at this point, and then there's this pause that you look at one of the women that they're interviewing, and she says, and then she got a call from a distraught mother that her daughter said that she had been raped at the festival. And then everybody is talking about, oh, my God, and everything. And I'm just sitting there thinking, is it because I've known this entire time that that is what this festival ending was known for, the sexual assaults? Or is it because every time I saw this mass of humanity, I mean, there was 400,000 people in there. And I just see all that, and you see the people rolling around in sewer mud and the people beating Mm -hmm. themselves in the head because they're so freaking high on whatever it was they snuck into the festival and all of this stuff. And it's just like, 
the whole idea that people got assaulted, I would have been surprised if there had been no reports of sexual assault. I mean, it's like yeah. it's like the worst corners of the internet at this point, that you have horrible people that have surrounded themselves in a situation where they feel completely anonymous. And a lot of people are just looking the other way or cheering them on. So yeah, yeah. I just, that was, that was a weird moment to me that everybody was very shocked in that documentary. It's something that needed to have a lot more said about it, but it didn't really surprise me. No, and I think that's probably one of the things that's like, I forget the musician who was talking about it, how awful it is that that happens, that women should feel free to go and have a good time just like guys. And that kind of shows where we are as a society, where, you know, as women, we're sitting here looking at this mass of humanity and you're like, yeah, I'm absolutely positive somebody got raped. I'm not blaming anybody who got raped and I'm not excusing anybody who did the raping, but the fact that it has gotten so bad that we're like, look at all those people and look at how much alcohol was going on. Of course, someone got raped. That's bad. You would hope yeah. that we would not be like, I, I, yeah, I would like to have been more shocked that that happened, but I wasn't. You know? No. Was, and I think, I think mm. things have changed a little bit because apparently there was one guy that got arrested for attacking a girl in a convenience store bathroom or behind a convenience store bathroom. And I think he did, he had like sentenced to six years, I think, because she was 14 years old. So <sighs> that, but his lawyer, apparently, uh, the defense was he was really, really drunk and she shouldn't have been in the position to get where she was nope. like that. And that's, nope. I feel like we've gotten a little like inching our way a little bit better to the point where, although I don't know, this is, this is probably a little bit dark here. Maybe our society is still doing very horribly, but, uh, at least, at least people are, are being horrified about it instead of saying, well, girls being naked, what you going to do? So, yeah, no, yeah. As, as far as I'm concerned, a girl should be able to walk naked down the street and no guy can touch her unless she says that it's okay. That's how I think it really should be. Because if a guy walked naked down the street, the only person who could touch him would be the police officers who came to get him off the street. <laughs> exactly. But to make it a little bit more lighter, that I really recommend this documentary because it, it is, is awfully good. fascinating that they go into every detail about how things got this bad. But after yeah. all of the too many people and they've got lackluster security, like, oh, that one guy they interviewed who sold his shirt to a guy so that he could get backstage. Yes. And he was like, I didn't care. I had another shirt in my backpack. So oh. I thought... That was hilarious, but terrible that this is what their security was and just gouging people for water and food and no shade and everything was just covered in sewage and everybody being treated like crap. And then you get to the point on Sunday night where they're like, and we've heard an announcement that they're passing out 100,000 candles. What? Oh my God. Oh my God. I couldn't believe it. It's like, this has been like a series of the worst possible decisions ever. How can we make it worse? Let's add fire. Oh my God. And they even had one person they were interviewing saying, we tried everything we could when these people were checking in to remove everything flammable from them as they went through security. And then they handed them fire. Oh, it was just, it was just so awful. It's funny. Uh, you never got to go to street scene here in San Diego, did you? Nope. nope. I went, yeah, I went to it years ago when I first moved in town and it was such a good time. They shut off all vehicular traffic in the downtown gas lamp area and it was just all the bars are open and they have all these different sound stages and it was just, it was so much fun. A lot of alcohol. Uh, great time. I guess it just didn't make them as much money as they were hoping. I don't know. Because years later, they did it again. But they had it over where Qualcomm Stadium used to be, kind of surrounding the stadium. Mm -hmm. 
in the parking lot. And it was just, <laughs> I know, you get out there and all these people were calling it parking lot scene. But that's really what this Woodstock Festival was. I mean, the original Woodstock Festival is on these pastoral kind of areas and grass and rolling hills. It did get trashed too, by the way. Let's not forget that. But um, but this was in an asphalt area and, you know, it's all very industrial. Sure, they had plenty of room. That's cool. That's nice. But there was no, I mean, just in the middle of these blazing hot days and everybody is just crowding under every single tiny bit of shade they can get it was not fun well it was a it was a decommissioned military installation yeah which really sums up i mean i don't know what decade that one guy who was uh, one of the organizers for the original woodstock he was not operating in the 90s he was still no. in the mindset of the 1960s and we're gonna like teach everybody peace and love and i i told dad about that we were watching this that they wanted to do it they decided to do another woodstock festival in 99 and dad was like what that's not gonna work so (laughs) the whole mindset has changed now you're not just i mean that poor woman that they showed driving around trying to convince people to pick up trash and they're just laughing at her like we're not gonna pick up trash we paid 150 dollars to be here you pick it up yeah oh god they really did get gouged oh it's just but it was really it was it was the combination of You've got some bad planning decisions going on. Sure, a lot of that. You've got people gouging the hell out of the... I mean, for every bottle of water, every single thing that you were going to buy, they weren't allowed to bring anything. I mean, they wouldn't let them bring their own water in. Every place that I know nowadays is like, you may not bring anything into the festival except water. And people (laughs) use that as an excuse to bring in alcohol, which... Of course. Yeah. But the third thing really was just, I mean... A combination of youth and no sense of accountability and alcohol and, honest to God, some real assholes who came there. Yeah. And it's just that combination coming together. Not a lot of non-white people, I noticed. Not that that means anything. You know, yeah, but I, I did notice, notice that. that too, actually. Wasn't that interesting? I mean, the MTV announcer was there. Yes. 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 But yeah, it was... Uh, Nathan said that he... He was still into going to big festivals in 1999, but he did not want to go to this simply because he saw the lineup, and it's a lot of metal stuff. And I'm like, yeah. well, right there, you're also getting away from the whole feel of Woodstock. I mean, how can you do Peace yeah. and Love if you've got Corn and Limp Biscuit as the uh, uh, headliners? Man, yeah, I remember some of the, in the documentary, they even talk about that. They're like... Um, we're not going to be able to calm anybody down if we have these next two numbers coming on. We are going to... And was it Limp Biscuit who was basically inciting everybody to oh, set yeah. everything oh, yeah. on fire? Oh, wow. Yeah, that oh, was... Goodness. But, I mean... I've been reading a bunch of different interviews about all this, and a lot of people pointed out that when the media covered this, they would show Limbiscuit and his set and inciting everybody and the fires. But that was Saturday night. There was a yes. whole other day of the festival before everything got to the point of everything being torn down and people running for their lives. So it's yeah. not, Limbiscuit did not set the entire festival on fire. He didn't help. But it wasn't the inciting factor, I think, was the fact that they had teased all this stuff about after the final set, there was going to be one more big surprise. And the big surprise was Jimi Hendrix playing on the video over the stage. And that was like kind of the last straw for a bunch of people. It's funny. I was thinking at at the time, I thought, what if they had one more act, but it actually backed out? But as comprehensive as this documentary was, if that had been the case, they would have told us. Yes, like, I oh, think they would have. Yes. going to be. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 
it's just, I mean, it is a shame that so many people got hurt. Oh, trench mouth. <laughs> it's like yeah. blisters in your mouth from drinking contaminated water. Oh, God. And they're playing around in the mud and the stuff that's in this mud. Oh, my God, you guys. It was really bad. I saw somebody on Reddit post a picture said that they thought it was really appropriate that they got Beavis and Butthead to be interviewed for this. And it's those two stoner guys that they were interviewing yes. throughout the documentary. I turned to Nathan and said, how many drugs do you think that blonde guy has had? And Nathan said, a lot. Oh, he's had all the drugs. Oh my god! His brain was so fried. I mean, he was happy. He was very enthusiastic about yeah. everything. But there was not like I don't think there was a whole bunch of consequences going on in his brain anymore. Nah. It was just like nah. you know the pleasure center, and that was pretty much it. So good job on their part for getting those two guys for the interview. Though they were every time I saw them, I'm like, oh, it's these two guys because <laughs> they had a great time. I mean, they obviously got freaked out at the ending when everybody was again running for their lives. But yeah, they had. There were a lot of people that apparently had a great time at this. There was also a lot of people that did not. And I think about three people at least died. Oh, that's right. Didn't they? That's all. I forgot about that. Yeah, because there was was at least one person who got a heat stroke and died. And there was a woman that got run over as everyone was leaving the, um, the the festival on the last night. I don't remember what the other one or two deaths were. But yeah, it was like, so you can't can't really crow about this particular documentary since there was a lot of cost in human lives and I'm sure there's people that probably had to go through trauma counseling for years after that but still that's a pretty amazing documentary yeah and then uh, you know obviously we've spoiled everything already so we'll just go ahead and spoil this last bit but that the documentary wraps up and I thought it was just like Hannah said it was just like another well fuck kind of moment at the end <laughs> it's that one organizer much older at the time, who's being interviewed in a very nice house. And he seems very pleasant, but he was the one who's clearly still living in the 60s. I mean, he was the one who did not want to have any armed security guards. He's like, that's not what we're all about. I'm like, yeah, but dude. Um, <laughs> and every everything that he said, I loved when you heard different people's opinions, like, oh, it was totally this. And you see somebody else, it was absolutely not that. But he gets done saying his piece and what happens and he's just smiling at the camera and then you see the words on the screen appear that shortly after filming this documentary he passed away and he's like and the words are there and he's still sitting there smiling at the camera and then he says goodbye and walks away i'm like oh wow that's quite a way to introduce that information i like how you described it it's like in a horror movie when the guy doesn't realize that the killer's behind him you know it's that (laughs) kind of just Oh, just, I mean, it was really, like, the Fire Festival is always going to be my favorite. But this one was cool because it's not like, it's not that same type of feeling of impending doom. Like, obviously, you could sense some doom coming in. But, I mean, these guys had put on festivals before, and there was a lot of money involved. But Hannah was the other one who pointed out that what made this even better than Fire Festival, this was uh, Fire Festival was intended to be a private thing for very rich people. This one, we've got pay-per-view and MTV on site. There is so much footage. So much footage. So many people freaking out and so many people running into danger because they've got to get footage of these semi-trailers exploding at the riot. Amazing. Amazing. And this is, you know, I mean... 
the internet, obviously totally a thing, but we had not seen like the explosion of social media. So people are not going to be like, well, I'm going to go over and, you know, I'm going to write this up on Twitter. It's going to be a hell of a thread and everything. No, when they got pissed off and what they do is they tear things down. I'm sure people tear things down nowadays too. But at that point, it's like, that's their only outlet. They're like, well, I'm just going to go burn some shit. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, good documentary. Uh, Three-parter. I hadn't even realized that until I went into it. I was like, oh, it's three episodes. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think, that was, I think that's a good way to do it because Fire Festival for a feature length thing got a little exhausting, I think. But that was yeah. also the frustration of people who were just so disconnected from the reality of the situation there. I mean, yeah, even yeah. even to as disconnected as some of the people were here, it was a lot of bad decisions building on each other, not a one stupid idea followed by just an even stupider idea for the most part. Yeah. Yeah, seriously. But I guess it's going to wrap us up for the week, so make sure to check out PixLadyGeek.com for all the book reviews, the movie reviews, the comic book reviews, the photo galleries. I still don't have photos from Alex and Stephanie. Oh, no. Yeah, I know. I know. I think both of them have gone on vacation. I'm like, guys, Oh, guys, guys stop letting your lives get in the way of the photographs. I know, Come on. Right? We need content, damn it. Anyway, uh, yeah, make sure to check out the site for your photo. Could possibly be in a photo gallery from San Diego Comic-Con and from WonderCon, come to think. So we have nice that as well. So yeah, very good. All that and more, pixelatedgeek.com. So um, one of the reasons why we didn't do Laura Olympus this week is they are officially, it's the two-week break. Yes. Um, th- thing, though, is that there are three episodes there available with a fast pass. I've read one of them, and I'm so tempted to fast pass another one, but I'm going to hold off because not not just because of the content of it, which is great, but how the episode ends. I'm like, oh, damn it. It's going to take forever. <laughs> uh. Yeah, I'm still waiting, but I'll, I'll, I'll resist as long as I can. Mm-hmm. So... We won't have Laura Olympus next week, so we'll just go ahead and do Night Vale next week and other nerd stuff that crosses our paths. So one way or the other, we will talk to everybody in one week. Talk to y'all later. And you're listening to Binary System Podcast. No, hang on, I'm going to crap my knuckles. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs>